So let's look at Acts 13, starting in verse 4. It says, So Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and sailed for the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. We find Paul and Barnabas in Cyprus on the first leg of their first missionary journey. All in all, Paul will take three missionary journeys through the book of Acts. But their work begins in Cyprus, an island which, because of its copper mines, has grown in influence in this corner of the Roman Empire. In fact, it used to just be a colony and now has representation in the Senate, which was a big deal in this cultural moment. Barnabas has connections in Cyprus, so it makes sense for them to begin their journey there. So Paul and Barnabas, they bring John Mark, and they begin on the east side of the island, slowly moving west. I guess I should do it the other way because you're looking at me this way. They begin on the east side of the island, and they slowly move west until they end up in the city of Paphos, the capital. But in these initial verses, in Acts 13, 4, and 5, we get a sense of how Paul goes about these missionary journeys. We get a sense of how he thinks and operates when he does these trips. First thing that we see is that Paul's ministry is marked by proclamation. The text says they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. In fact, the phrase word of God appears two or three times in this passage. If we are going to be everyday missionaries that Jesus calls us to be, proclamation will be necessary. Paul preaches and he preaches in synagogues. Uh, in his letter to the Romans, Paul says that his calling is to the Jew first, then to the Greek. The Jew first, then to the non-Jew. So as Paul, as Paul moves from city to city in the book of Acts, he almost always begins in the synagogue, not only fulfilling his calling, but hopefully seeking to find an audience that is most sympathetic to his cause. It is the Jews who are waiting for the vindication, the appearance of their Messiah. It is the Jews that would make most sense to hear Paul say, this person that you've been waiting for is here in Jesus. And so he always begins with the synagogues before moving out. And then Paul also, we note, has John Mark with him. He has John Mark with him. Now that'll become a problem in a couple of chapters, which we'll see soon. But it is not uncommon for Paul to bring a younger man along to train him in this kind of work. If you are unsure of what it looks like to follow Jesus, here's what you do. You find a Paul to your Timothy. You find a Paul to your John Mark. If you don't know how to pray, you find someone who knows how to pray, and you take them to coffee, and you ask them about prayer. If, if you don't know how to be a Christian husband or dad or grandparent, you find someone in our community who does that well, and you take them to lunch, and you ask them about it. And if you're a seasoned believer in our midst, you ask God to open your eyes to the people that need our investment. And we open our homes and our lives and we have people over for dinner and we ask questions and we build in relationship. The way, of Jesus is a the way of Jesus is a mentoring way. The way of Jesus is a mentoring way. Right? So we have Paul and Barnabas pre preaching the word of God from one end of Cyprus to the other and they ultimately end up in Paphos, the capital city, and that's when things get interesting. Look at verse 6. 
Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until they finally reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. That means son of, Bar means son of. Verse 7, he had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who is an intelligent man. In other words, to say he's not just being tricked by this guy. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. In Paphos, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark meet this man named Bar-Jesus, and he also goes by Elymas. Now, it's not uncommon in this time in history to have two or even three names, like the name of your like common descent and your origin. So Saul's original name, because he's Jewish, is Saul, Bar-Jesus is Bar-Jesus. Then you probably have a Greek name or a Roman name that you kind of just go by casually, and then you have an official legal Roman name if you're a Roman citizen. So there's three names. That's why we see Saul being kind of called Saul in some parts, Paul being called Paul in some parts, because when he's in a Roman context, he uses his Roman name. When he's in a Jewish context, he uses his Jewish name. So they meet this Bar-Jesus or Elymas, and right off the bat, we know three things about him, and really none of them are good. First, he is a sorcerer. Second, he is a false prophet. Third, he is Jewish. Bar-Jesus is an ethnic Jew, and therefore he is at least nominally Jewish by practice. But he's clearly not a faithful Jew, because the law of Moses is pretty clear, we don't practice sorcery. But he does. So, so he has become a false prophet by practicing sorcery. Now, and... and and I want to double-click on all of this and reflect on this Bar-Jesus guy for a second. And I want to show you what the talking heads on CNN or Fox News or your Instagram feed have in common with this Bar-Jesus who's actually a necromancer. And that's not to say, by the way, that tomorrow when you're watching Good Morning America... Uh, you should expect to hear, I, I, I assume that you're going to hear someone say, and now we're going to hear from a Jewish necromancer about three predictions for the summer, right? Um, none of us are uh, following necromancers on Instagram, as far as I know, but there's a commonality between Bar-Jesus and his function in this cultural moment and what we might call influencers in ours. So let me show you what I mean. In Acts 13, the word Luke uses to describe Bar-Jesus is magus, M-A-G-U-S. Uh, a magus, at this point in time, is a diviner who, through various rituals, claimed to be able to evoke the dead, including the shades or spirits of one ancestors. And since Bar-Jesus is called a prophet, the text suggests he is claimed to be able to tell the future perhaps through necromancy, perhaps through astrology or magical spells and rituals involving all of the above. In other words, Bar-Jesus presents himself to the governor of Cyprus as someone who is able to tell the future by consulting with the dead. In the book of Acts, Luke introduce, introduces us to three magicians. Peter has already dealt with one. Paul will have another magical encounter later in Acts. Luke sees these kinds of practices, these magical practices, as an ongoing threat 
or at least a dangerous form of competition for Christianity. What Luke sees to be a competition and dangerous threat to Christianity, by the way, this is interesting, is not the formal religions of Rome. It's these, what you might call, low country religions that are syncretistic in their practice, that combine various elements of various traditions into kind of some blobby new kind of religion. What I'm saying about that this morning then is, if Luke were here, he would say to us that the biggest threat to Christianity in our day is not formal religions like Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism. What is most threat, what is the biggest threat to the way of Jesus in our cultural moment, Luke would say, are these syncretistic, spiritualistic influencer types that kind of promote a way of thinking and living that sometimes doesn't always seem clear on the surface is contrary to the way of Jesus. I mean, in all three of these magic accounts in Acts, we find sorcerers or magicians with some sort of Jewish background. And they're combining practices and the theology of Judaism uh, with, with other cultural practices, in this case, necromancy, astrology, speaking to the dead. And, and there's this syncretistic tendency Syncretism is this fancy word for a blending of religions that is alive and well in our cultural moment. I will take a little bit of Christianity. I will take a little bit of Buddhism. I will take a little bit of just hard work and work ethic. I'll take a little bit of this worldview and that philosophical thing, and I'll blend them together, and that smoothie is my religion. This is what, um, just, this is what Oprah loves to do, right? Oprah loves to kind of have a smoothie religion. And, and I, when I was like in high school, do you remember The Secret? Like Deepak Chopra, right? The Secret dude. He would like in the same book quote Buddha and Jesus and all of these other spiritualistic people and kind of say, see all of these religions kind of melded together. Here's the smoothie. To name names of a more popular book, I don't usually do this because I don't like to yell at our culture, but there's this book that came out a few years ago, Girl, Wash Your Face. It's called Girl, Wash Your Face. Like if a if like a Christian book is like on an end cap at Target, like probably not like the best theology, right? Um, although I guess Annie's books are there too. But anyway, the point is, um, so like again in this girl washer Facebook, it's this syncretistic approach of here's a little bit of Jesus and here's a little of American work ethic and blend all of these ideas together into a smoothie that I'll give you. And and what's so interesting is this syncretistic mishmash of religion gives people in our culture the same kind of influence that bar jesus has in the court of the governor of cyprus this syncretistic mishmash spiritualistic approach to religion gives instagram influencers and talking heads on cnn and fox news and good morning america and on social media the same kind of influence that bar jesus has in the court of cyprus what I'm saying is if Instagram had been existing then, like, he would have been, Bar-Jesus would have been insta-famous, right? Uh, he would have been on Fox News. He would have been on Good Morning America. He would have been on CNN. He would have been the person that people are talking to for wisdom and insight. Almost every Instagram influencer and talking head on your favorite news picture, news program, whether that's CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, they are all painting a picture for you of what is the good life and what is the blessed life and what is the happy life. And in almost every case, they are syncretistically combining spiritual practices and theologies and worldviews and ideas from a variety of sources. 
And again, whether that's Oprah with The Secret or it's Girl, Wash Your Face, or if it's starting your day by reading the Bible app and then checking your horoscope, if it's subscribing to QAnon, which, by the way, is the very definition of a syncretistic theology that takes Bible verses and applies them to our cultural moment in America. Whatever the case, there are plenty of talking heads in our society, plenty of bar Jesus types. And here's the interesting thing about them. They look helpless. They, no, hang on. They don't look helpless. They look helpful. The way they present their life and the way they articulate their vision of the world sounds like it makes sense. It sounds helpful. It sounds simple. But what we don't realize about these influ Instagram influencers is what we don't realize, is what the governor of Cyprus didn't realize about Bar Jesus. Because look again at verse 8. It says that this Bar Jesus was trying to keep the governor from believing. The governor, Sergius Paulus, has invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him. Why? He wanted to hear the word of God. But this bar Jesus, it says he interfered. He urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Every Christian is a white nationalist. Don't worry about them. Every Christian is a racist. Don't worry about them. Every Christian is a bigot. Don't worry about them. There's this cultural narrative going on about the way of Jesus that's trying to interrupt and interfere with people that are already walking with Jesus, that are seeking after Jesus. And here's what we're going to find, by the way. Uh, none of this is neutral. Talking heads on CNN, your Instagram influencers, whoever it is, none of it's neutral. They're either trying to help you be more faithful to Jesus or not. There's a war going on. Um, our battle's not against flesh and blood. Neither the top people on Fox News nor CNN are your enemy. Neither is a president of either party in the Oval Office. But here's what we're about to learn. I think this is interesting. The most dangerous place to be in the universe, do you know where that is? It is not between Kyle and his lunch. The most dangerous place to be in the universe is between a person who wants to believe in God and the God who wants this person to believe in him. The most dangerous place in the universe to be is in between the God who seeks after lost people and a lost person who's seeking after God. It's the most dangerous place in the universe to be. Look at verse 9 of Acts 13. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he looked the sorcerer in the eye. And he said, this is not politically correct, you son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud and enemy of all that is good, will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord. Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment on you, and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around and begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. Paul, this, these verses speak for themselves, Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, does not mince words, and by the power of the Holy Spirit works a miracle. 
And there's a part of me that wonders as he, as Paul watches bar Jesus led from the room, struck blind. Blindness, by the way, is always used um, as a curse from the Lord to give more room for repentance. He doesn't strike him dead. He strikes him blind. He's trying to prevent bar Jesus. The Lord is trying to prevent bar Jesus from doing more harm and give him some space to repent. But I also can't remember, help but wonder if as Paul watched this bar Jesus led from the room by the hand, if Paul saw himself blind being led to the city of Damascus. I can't help but wonder if Paul thought, there go I except for the grace of God. As bar Jesus is led from the room, we're reminded that the most dangerous place to be is between the God who longs to be known by us and someone who longs to be known by him. If you're watching your children and grandchildren slowly dragged into a pattern of thinking and living that you find dismaying, take heart. Look at the passion of God who seeks after those who seek after him. If you have a friend who has walked faithfully with the Lord and suddenly stopped at the behest of some sort of ideology or way of thinking, look at the passion with which God seeks after those who belong to him. If you worry about the force our culture is exerting against the good news of Jesus, take heart. Look at the passion with which God seeks after those who seek after him, because look at what happens in verse 12. Paul does not have more access to the Holy Spirit than you have. The same spirit that dwells inside Paul is the same spirit that dwells in you. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says it clearly in Ephesians 2 that the very moment we said yes to Jesus, we're signed, sealed, and delivered. This is why we want to increase our Holy Spirit dependency as a church. It is impossible to do these things apart from Jesus. Now, and here's what the so what is this morning. It's impossible to do these things without the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What the, the last few minutes of this sermon are not a instructional on how to curse someone blind. Uh, but I want to think about what are some practical ways that we can demonstrate the power of the gospel in our ordinary lives. What are some practical ways that we can demonstrate the gospel, how we can bring together proclamation and demonstration? We're going to get to proclamation really heavily this fall, but we're going to be looking at demonstration a lot through the summer too. So how do we demonstrate the gospel? How do we show as well as tell? One of the most valuable things, and uh, there's a few people in our church that are seeing a lot of fruitfulness in this with their non-Christian friends and family, is simply by being intentional about prayer. Prayer is a supernatural event. Prayer is a naturally supernatural event. And so when you have a friend, go, this I think I'm only going to unpack this one thing. I had like two or three. I think I'm going to unpack this one thing today. How do we pray as a way to demonstrate the good news of Jesus to our friends and family? When someone is going through a hard time, and they, whether or not they do or don't know Jesus, but let's assume they don't, when someone's going through a hard time, you ask them, would it be okay if I prayed for you? Ask, don't tell. 
would it be okay if I prayed for you? They're going to say, yes, please. They may not believe a lick of what you think, but when people are desperate, they'll, listen, we live in the Midwest, okay? And as secular as we want to be, at the end of the day, everybody's open to the idea of God on some level for the most part. And so they'll probably say yes. So you pray for them. You ask, you don't assume. You say, would it be okay if I pray for you? And as time goes on, you become more specific. You increase challenge. And the next time you see them as they're walking through that, you say, how can I be praying for you? You've asked their permission to pray. Now I'm saying, how can I be praying for you? And then as time goes on further, you start to be more specific. You maybe text them and say, this is how I've been praying for you today. One, two, three. This is a passage of scripture that God brought to mind while I was praying for you. Boom. Um, as time goes on, you get even bolder. You say, would it be okay if I prayed for you right now? Right? As time goes on further, you say, would it be okay if I prayed for you out loud right now? And could I just put my hand on your shoulder? Oh. Yeah. Right? Prayer is one of the most naturally supernatural ways that we demonstrate the good news of Jesus, right? Because what we're letting people know is that there is a God who is for them and loves them and is invested in their circumstances, and they may never know him, but they know you. And so by kind of going along this trajectory of, hey, would it be okay if I prayed for you? How can I be praying for you? Here's something that came to mind while I was praying for you. Um, hey, would it be okay if I called you on the phone and we prayed together right now? Um, hey, let me put my hand on your shoulder as we pray together. This is one of the ways that we demonstrate the gospel, especially if God moves, and he will. Especially if God moves, and he will. But all of this would be impossible. All of this would be impossible if it weren't for the fact that we have been given the Holy Spirit. Right? Paul says uh, in Ephesians he says, now you Gentiles, it's all sort of the truth that the good news saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit who he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance that he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. I'm not asking you to strive today. I'm asking you to grow in your alliance on the Holy Spirit and to pray for your friends and family, even your friends and family who are practicing necromancy. Seth, would you come in? We don't just want to be people who hear the word of God, but we want to be doers of the word of God. And so as I was listening to the sermon this morning, um, it's interesting. Every time we talk about proclamation and demonstration, I think of Jack's book about the prophet Elijah and Mount Carmel and, and how in the, in the book it's what, whose team are you on? Are you on Yahweh's team? Are you on Baal's team? And um, and so it feels like even this passage is kind of that idea again of like whose team are you on? And so what my first question for you this morning is if you feel like either you're not on Jesus's team or you're trying to be on Jesus's team, but there is something that's there's a block there, there's some kind of barrier. Um, I would just encourage you to ask the Father what that barrier is. What's keeping you from fully stepping in and following Jesus? The second question that I have is, um, as we think about prayer and, and kind of stepping into more prayer, what are the internal barriers that you have toward that? 
What are the things in your heart? Is it fear? Is it um, discomfort? Is it lack of faith that God's actually going to work through that? Um, and so let's just take a moment and ask the Father to kind of highlight for us what it is that he wants to get our attention with this morning. And then um, I'll pray after just a minute. his life and death and resurrection his ascension to the right hand of the father where he even prays for us now assures us that we are heard when we pray assures us that God is for us and not against us and that we have connection with him that's why we come to this table so that we can do more than just be reminded but that we can enter in to that story again the story of this Jesus who was broken for us. The story of this Jesus who was poured out for us so that we might enter into his presence without fear and with the very confidence of God's own children. And so today we're going to come to the table together. And uh, the way that we do this is simple. Anyone with a pulse is welcome to Jesus' table. You'll come forward, someone will hand you a communion element, and you'll go back to your seat and take it whenever you're ready. You can come whenever you're ready, because the band will be leading us in a song. And we'll celebrate the fact that Jesus has given us lasting forever connection to the Father through what he's done. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son. 
So, Father, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that in the eating and drinking of them, we might have an experience of your presence, that we might be filled again by the fullness of the Holy Spirit, that our faith would rise as we seek to join you in all that you're doing, that we would see beyond what is right in front of our faces to what you were doing. We give you thanks, Jesus, that you have welcomed us into the family of God and ask that you would move among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Holden and Ross, would you come help us serve communion? the table is open. <laughs> Thanks, Dominic. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. So may you walk in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit this week. I love you. We'll see you next time. Peace. 1030 next week.